Welcome to Frictionless Marketing, an exploration of how modern marketers are building their brands, reaching their audiences, and thriving in this post-advertising world. In today's episode, we have a presentation from our CEO, Paul Dyer, which provides insight into our agency, Lippy Taylor's unique approach to earned-first healthcare marketing. As the media landscape pivots from traditional editorial teams towards prosumer content creators, the communications function within pharma companies find themselves not only at a pivotal crossroads, but also with a unique opportunity to evolve into major sales drivers. This episode offers compelling evidence into how adopting an earned-first creative strategy can fundamentally shift the direction of healthcare companies that are confined by conventional marketing approaches while propelling them towards their sales goals. Furthermore, we delve into the crucial shift that healthcare brands need to make from storytelling to story-making with practical examples and case studies from brands who have successfully made this transition with their marketing. Without further ado, here is Lippy Taylor CEO, Paul Dyer. So today I'm going to attempt to convince you five things. First, that consumerization has demonstrably rendered the advertising-led DTC approach less effective. And again, in pharma, DTC is basically consumer advertising. As opposed to in consumer goods, DTC is about skipping retail and selling directly to consumers. In pharma, DTC is just about advertising directly to patients. Um, that many pharma brands are falling short of their sales expectations and that I would draw a direct line to an outdated DTC approach for why they're not meeting their sales expectations. That there is one simple objective that we can statistically prove is the answer to increasing your share of category sales. So if you think about, you know, all the drugs in a certain therapeutic area, um, that's the total pie, your share of that total pie. There's one statistically proven way that you can increase your share of that pie. PR and communications as an opportunity to lead here. But in order to lead, PR leaders need to embrace change and push their marketing colleagues. Again, remember, this is a PR audience, so this is that's a bit of a layup there. Um, and that an earned first DTC approach, similar to what we've seen in other industries, is the best way to achieve this. And if it sounds familiar, it's because last year I spoke at the same conference and I gave a pretty similar talk, just with less data. It was, it was at that point, it was like, I wrote a book about this. Trust me. Now it's like we have a lot of data showing that this actually works. Um, and the good news is a year later, it's starting to come true. One of the things I talked about was how pharma has been so stubborn with traditional advertising. You look at like this is um, food and beverage. Go all the way back to 2015 and they started precipitously declining how much money they were spending in traditional advertising. Right, Pharma just six and a half billion year after year after year after year and this is the first year that we've seen they finally started to sort of like catch up with the trend and move budget out of linear tv ads um and i have real data to show that basically credential us as an agency and then also to show that the approach that we're describing works so this is our frictionless intelligence team looked at data from IQVIA, which is sort of the de facto, you know, expert on weekly pharmaceutical sales data. And we looked at five brands. Um, three of them were um, Lippy Taylor clients that are no longer Lippy Taylor clients. Two of them still are. And we were able to look at their sales. I think we looked weekly, we looked monthly, we looked quarterly, when they were just wrapping it into quarters. Um, before they were our client, while they were our client, and then for the three, after they were our client. 
And what we were able to show is for those that um, basically the quarters when we were their agency, they increased their share of category sales 83% of those quarters. And the quarters where they had a different agency, they increased their sales 58% of those quarters. That's pretty amazing. All right, when you think about that. And so that's like our real, like kind of our killer app there of saying, you know, our approach works and we can show head to head with sort of what we would consider a traditional approach to PR communications. So first things first, there is such a thing as a very traditional approach to PR communications. It's a playbook that we all would recognize. This is a campaign that was submitted to Cannes this year for best, you know, example of PR and communications. It's called Talk That Talk About Prostate Cancer. He uses a retired pro football player to communicate the message that it's important for men to get screened for prostate cancer and that black men are disproportionately at risk. Um, and uh, this is a campaign that's called Know Your Stats About Prostate Cancer. It uses a retired pro football player to communicate that men should be getting screened for prostate cancer and that black men are disproportionately at risk. This was 10 years ago. And if you actually look at the two campaigns side by side, it's remarkably similar how the tactics rolled out. They are, it's, they're doppelganger campaigns 10 years apart. And the worst part is I didn't even know this existed. I just saw this one and I was like, God, that's so formulaic. There's got to be another one out there like that. Let's look at like 10 years ago. And I searched 2013 and like, boom, there it is. I probably could have done it with a dozen different campaigns, right? There's this formulaic playbook approach to how these, these brands are doing this. It's not just that that's tiresome and sort of like professionally boring. It's, it's also not working. And there's several different studies that have been published on this recently. Um, Deloitte, McKinsey, and then there's a third that I can never remember their name, but they're, they're specialized in pharma consulting. And they say somewhere between I think, 36% and 66% of pharma products fail to reach their sales expectations. And that's both internal expectations, that's external expectations from industry analysts, um, and you can see it's different, you know, sort of by therapeutic area. Um, but the, the main takeaway is a shocking number of pharmaceutical products are not actually reaching their sales forecasts. And our premise is that consumerization is a big reason why. So this is, of course, a lead into how we talk about CX2 as an agency. But the main, the main premise here is that everybody's expectations of pharma brands are set by their experiences with non-pharma brands. And so again, this is the McKinsey study. It basically says we expect exactly the same levels of service and responsiveness and information and offering value from a pharma brand as we expect from, you know, anything we would buy at the grocery store. And we did this study and showed 64% of patients who have filled a new prescription in the past year say they expect getting a prescription medicine to be as easy as ordering products from Amazon. And of course, it's not. We had a, a meeting um, this week and they were saying, yeah, it's actually easier to get a gun than it is to get a prescription medicine, right? So you can see there's a massive disconnect between the expectations and the experience. Um, this idea of consumerization, right, being at the, the root of expectations versus experience, Amazon setting our expectations, it's now sort of, I mean, it's, it's everywhere, right? Every major industry, it's Tesla disrupting General Motors, it's Netflix disrupting Disney, it's, you know, you can go across pretty much every industry and see how consumerization, these same trends have disrupted these industries. So why would we think that pharma would be immune to it when pharma is 
one of the most sort of interwoven industries with the current economy? And so the answer, of course, is it's not, right? The things that are that drive consumerization or the hallmarks of consumerization, things like pricing pressures, you know, things like um, moving to virtual, you know, access, moving to um, disintermediating middlemen, right? So instead of going to an optometrist, we just buy our glasses online, you know, those kinds of things. Um, HCPs have started to accept that Dr. Google is now part of their practice, essentially. Um, and then this last one is really important is our deductible, you know, raising from on average $300 a year that people were paying out of pocket for their healthcare to now an average of $1,700. Actually, by now it's probably over $2,000 they're paying. That's a remarkable increase for the average American. And what it has led to is a complete shift in expectations. And this is where I liken this to higher education, where when people were were paying seven or $8,000 for college education, sorry, $8,000 a year for college education, um, they understood they were a student. They had to work hard to get grades in order to earn a degree. You were a student, you were subordinate to the professor. Now you're paying 50, 60 grand a year. It's like, I'm a customer and I bought a degree and I expect good grades is the attitude. And there's all kinds of news articles being written about how you know college students and the professors all feel like college students have gotten so entitled. And it's like, yeah, you're charging them 300 grand. They have expectations now. They're a customer. They're no longer subordinate to you. And the same thing is happening in pharma is people are saying, you know what, if I was spending this much on it, it's going to be on my terms. And I did my research. I know what prescription medicine I want. Doctor, I expect you to give it to me. It's a completely different dynamic than it was even five years ago, let alone 10 or 20 years ago. Now, this is also a point where in our audience, there's a lot of people squirming, right? Because there is a, there is a point where the doctor is supposed to be writing prescriptions. The patient doesn't actually know what's best for them a lot of times, right? And so it's like, well, where does the doctor fit in all this? Even in our research, what we found is 81% of patients say their number one preference would be to first learn about a new prescription medicine from a doctor. But the problem is they don't get very much time with doctors. It's a hassle to go see them, et cetera, et cetera. Oftentimes they don't know that to bounce around between specialists. So a lot of times they are filling the gap themselves, even though their preference would be to learn about a medicine from a doctor. Um, so putting pharma aside, so I just made the case here, like, you know, consumerization is disrupting pharma. Whether you buy into that sort of like, you know, hook, line and sinker as I'm presenting it, or maybe just a little bit or, you know, at all, what you do have to buy into is that consumerization has completely disrupted advertising, right? Marketing, media and advertising. And this is, of course, what I wrote the whole book about and studied exhaustively is this is why we're paying for subscriptions now to news and Spotify and Netflix. All stuff is basically we're saying, like, we have disintermediate advertising. We have consumerized the marketing and media landscape. We get it on our terms now. Right. So if you think about the point of this presentation, it's DTC advertising has to change in pharma. Um, and it's not just, you know, that it's been consumerized. It's that pharma brands are sort of uniquely bad at advertising, right? They're, they're atrocious at advertising. And it's not even just the, you know, the, the litany of, of side effects and things like that. It's that the actual creative is terrible, you know, and they're just blasting it at everybody. So people are being targeted for diseases that have nothing to do with them, or, you know, as opposed to being really thoughtful about where they're placing them, et cetera. It's been this spray and pray 
uh, mentality. So I said there's a simple solution. The simple solution is we looked at a couple dozen drugs um, over 10 years and their monthly um, increase or decrease in sales, their variance in sales. And we found that Google searching explains 94% of that variance. Now you think about that, 94% of the variance in, in drug sales up or down is explained by Google searching. So of course the answer is get Googled. Um, now you can't game this because of course the immediate sort of like cynical answer is like, well, we'll just pull all of our budget into paid search. You know, it's like you can, you can win this and not spend a single dollar with Google. It's about the behavior. It's about driving people to be curious enough about a pharmaceutical product that they search for it by name. Now, sometimes they'll get there by starting with symptom searching, right? Or searching about something else. And then they move into a branded search. But this is about driving branded search for pharmaceutical products can describe 94% of the variance in sales for those products, which is probably not surprising when you consider, you know, healthcare searches is 7% of all searches on Google. There's 70,000 healthcare searches a minute. It's a billion searches a day that are health related. Two thirds of all patients search Google before a health consultation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there are nuances to it. For very expensive drugs, they're a little bit less responsive. You know, they, they don't go up or down as much based on um, Google searching behavior. So you can see that the, the less expensive drugs are more responsive to Google searching. The more expensive drugs are less responsive to Google searching. Um, and there are cases where um, doctors will essentially... Oh, it doesn't want to load that slide. It's okay. I can tell you what it said. Um, there's cases where doctors will aggressively talk people out of a out of a drug. Either it's not well tolerated, it is bad side effects, or they just don't believe the data, or they don't think it's worth it compared to, you know, the other options, um, or they think you should try something else first. So there are cases where doctors will, will aggressively talk people out of a drug, and in those cases, the the relationship to Google isn't isn't nearly as strong. Um, and then the other thing to bear in mind, of course, is they're not always doing this before the doctor, right? So 47% of people will search for a pharmaceutical medicine by name before seeing a doctor. 81% will search for it after seeing a doctor. So, you know, it's not just like, cause linear is that, you know, like I'll make them search before they go to the doctor. It's, it's being findable, um, you know, as part of their journey. And of course, one of the issues in the pharmaceutical industry is you think back to that, like really boring playbook. We're terrible at being findable in Google. Like across the industry, you go to search any therapeutic area, it's going to be Wikipedia, WebMD, et cetera, et cetera, all at the top. You know, the brand website is probably up there just in a paid search ad, and that's it. I mean, if you go to other high consideration categories, like buying a car, and you search for the car, you're going to be finding reviews and experiences and, and influencers talking about the car, and you're going to be finding like, the car being used in real life and all this stuff and lots of articles about it, right? Because earned media is one of the best ways to own organic search results. And in pharma, that's just not what you find. So I wonder if this battery just, uh, it's just like not moving here. Oh, there it goes. Okay, there we go. All right. Um, so just a couple more data points from the study here to sort of you know drive home this point. Um, this is about if they were if asking patients if they were to experience a new health-related symptom today, what would they do? 65% say they would search for a prescription medicine to treat it before even calling their doctor, right? 84% um, say if they received a new prescription, they would Google it before taking it. So, you know, kind of driving home that point that Google really is central to our experience with pharma products. 
get Googled. So how do you get Googled in the consumerized era? Um, historically, this is why we did commercials, right? We did TV commercials so much that there's like a whole like subgenre of parodies that just make fun of pharmaceutical commercials. These have been viewed a hundred million times on YouTube, just parodies making fun of pharma commercials. Like that's sort of how ingrained it is in culture, but it did work for a period of time. And this is, you know, Google showing us people Googling for drugs after they see a, t a commercial about it. Right. So it did work for a period of time. Of course, we all know all the, the stats about people just don't watch ads like they used to. But this is why we made TV commercials historically. And they still kind of work. So this is, again, from our study, we said, you know, which has ever been the reason you search for a medicine by name? Which of these things? First thing first, hearing about it from a doctor. Then I was already Googling, right, for something, a, a symptom. You know, I was already searching Google. Hearing about it from a friend or family member. Hear about same as earn media, right? Seeing an ad about it or reading a news article about it. They're almost neck and neck at this point. Seeing an ad on a website and then hearing about it on social media or from an influencer. And so you can see that we sort of categorize these into, is this typically advertising-led program or programming or what we would call earned first programming? HTTP marketing is typically advertising-led programming. Disease awareness is typically earned first programming. Word of mouth, definitely earned first. TV ads, definitely advertising-led. Earned media, definitely earned first. Digital ads, ad-led. Social media is typically earned first programming, especially with influencers. So you can see that the way that people are actually, um, the things that are driving people to Google, we're saying like, get Googled, it's driving the behavior. The things that drive the behavior are actually more than half of them are earned first activities. So the earned first DTC play playbook. First things first, shifting resources from these brand-centric promises to engaging the patient across the journey. And so this is, you look at pharma and biotech, how they currently allocate their resources. And it's about half goes to HCP marketing, about a third goes to consumer marketing, and then you have your other stakeholders. And so what we're saying is you actually need to shift some of that. You know, doctors are still always going to be very important, but you need to put more emphasis on reaching patients today. The second is understanding the full spectrum of consumers' expectations and experiences. So this is CX2, and it's basically saying, look, it makes sense in a world where you were HCP-led that you would have a monolithic customer journey. Because frankly, most doctor groups are not very diverse. You go into specialties and many of them, they went to like one of five schools. They spent 10 years in school. Then they did their residency at one of three, you know, um, hospital systems or, you know, wherever they did their residency. And now they're in practice and they're typically very demographically homogenous. So to say like there's one, um, you know, like one customer journey that describes like all the pulmonologists out there, it's actually like, yeah, I could make a case for that. I understand that's where you come from in pharma. But when you think about the patients, you think about 100,000 or 10 million patients that are suffering from a disease, there is no monolithic journey that describes those patients. They are as diverse as America is. And where they get their information is as diverse as where everybody in America gets their information. Their influences are wildly diverse, et cetera. And so you have to map and understand their expectations and their experiences in order to reach them. Otherwise, this is why there's 100 million people making fun of pharmaceutical ads because they're being bombarded with ads that make no sense to them, that are not relevant to them because they haven't done this work first. Number three, and this is something we talk about a lot now, something that I think is starting to become part of the vernacular of how we tell our story as an agency. So hopefully you can all sort of um, you know, embrace this as well, 
is this idea of evolving from storytelling to story making. And this is at the heart of an earned first approach, earned first creative. And this is just me making fun of the industry again. I like to poke. Um, there's plenty of people in the audience if these are their campaigns. Um, but if you just go search Google for real patient stories, oh, they're everywhere. It's like every disease state. It's like, here Beth's story, here Sarah's story, here Oscar's story, Michelle's stories are real stories. These aren't made up stories. We're telling real stories here. And it's just wallpaper, right? Like nobody listens to them. Nobody believes them. Real patient stories are just overdone at this point, right? So how do you go beyond being storytellers, which is what we as communicators oftentimes have identified with? And sure, we can tell stories. That's part of it. I'm not saying we stop telling stories, right? But go beyond just being storytellers and be story makers. Do something that other people would talk about, right? So other people are telling our story because we did something that was worth sharing. Number four, just accept that paid media effectiveness has plummeted. And that's why you should plan earn first, amplify later with paid. Uh, this study from Kellogg came out, I think, a year and a half ago. TV advertising is about 15 to 20 times less effective than conventional wisdom says. All right. So like all these brands that still plan paid first because they're like, I got $10 million of ad spend. I'm going to plan that first and then I'll amplify with earned. You got to flip it around now. You got to come up with what are we going to do that's going to earn attention first? What are we going to do that people are going to talk about? And then you say, oh, look, I've got a bunch of ad spend that I can put behind me making sure people saw this. Um, supplement studio produced content with creator produced content. We still think that you should produce some high fidelity agency produced, you know, working with professional production studios content. And you should supplement that by working with creators on TikTok and having them make content that's just going to resonate with patients, you know, and you should supplement that with, you know, creators that are on YouTube and all these other channels. Embracing new technologies and channels quickly, which is something that pharma really struggles with. They're very risk averse. But the idea here is this is an idea that we pitched to have um, to be the first um, telehealth in the metaverse. So you'd have nurses actually staffing in the metaverse and people can come in with their avatar and get and get a consult right there in the metaverse. This is an idea where we had a, um, you know, an AI sort of generated video series around that goes around the globe start with one video that we produce professionally and then AI localizes it for every region around the country or around the world so that when you see it in Botswana, it feels like it's meant for you. And when you see it in Cambodia, it feels like it was meant for you. Um, this is one of the top oncologists on TikTok, right? And then this is another AI idea that we had pitched. So the idea is embracing the new channels like TikTok and the new in the metaverse and the new technologies like AI quickly. All right, so I'm going to show three examples that come from other agencies' work. And for people in pharma, they're familiar with these typically, but I'm going to describe them here as they play. And the thing to keep in your mind is, is this work PR or is it advertising? So this is the Unwearables collection from Behringer Ingelheim. It was a very, very widely regarded work. It was for um, psoriasis patients, and they talked to them about what does it feel like to have psoriasis? And they talked about things like, it feels like my skin is being cut by a thousand pieces of glass or it feels like I have paper cuts on every inch of my body or whatever. And then they worked with this fashion designer to design basically a fashion line that brings to life what that would really look like if that was, you know, on your body. And this launched a medical meeting. 
right? To show doctors what patients are feeling like. And then they toured it around the country and they put all this content together for it. And it became a really, really the centerpiece of a really big campaign. So think about story making, right? It's a great example of doing something first and then amplifying around it. Second one here is IDAR. So this is Horizon Therapeutics. They have a couple different products for people who are either currently blind or on the path to blindness. And what they did is they said, you know what? We can use the iPhone and create essentially an echolocation app. You think about how bats, which are blind, right? Navigate is through echolocation, bouncing sounds off of their environment. And they created an app that allows the iPhone to do that. And so people who suffer from blindness now can wear their iPhone around their neck and walk and they are listening on their earbuds and they can navigate now in their environment simply by sound. Um, brilliant story making, solving a problem, right? Um, and then the third one here, this is AstraZeneca trying to push the flu vaccine. So they said for kids, so pediatric flu vaccine. So they took these kids and they put this like, uh, this little UV uh, like glue or paint under their, under their nose. And then they had them go about their school day. And then at the very end of the day, they said, everybody stop. And they turned on black lights all over the kids. And um, as you would imagine, and you'll see in just a second, these kids touched here. They did this. They were sniffly. They whatever. And then they touched everything. Right. And so it brings to life like, ooh, like what a great activation stunt way of bringing this to life right making this story come to life right <laughs> okay so was it advertising or was it pr and the point here is that outside of pharma those are pr ideas right when you think about the way work gets done in personal care or cpg that's the idea that would be brought forth by the pr firm in pharma those were all done by ad agencies and it's because the ad agencies have gotten religion about this, right? This acts, not ads. This idea that we should be doing things, acts, taking acts and actions instead of just making ads is something that's become very popular throughout the advertising landscape. Um, and they're all basically trying to figure out how they can become earned first. The problem is they're not built for it, right? They're not made to do this. They're made to make ads. They're built to make ads. And they're not very good at coming up with this. So those were three brilliant examples out of 3,000, right, terrible examples. So the fact that, you know, like I used my, my Midwest colloquialism here, like even a blind squirrel finds a nut, like, yeah, sure, they stumble on a great idea sometimes, but they're not doing it like purposefully, you know? And so that's where we think this, what we described before, this earned first DTC approach is what delivers this more consistently. So, um, and you know, this is why there's a meaningful difference when we lead or in first DTC versus when you've got the ad agency leading it. Okay. So let's look at some examples for us. This is the Alba Rayo, you know, children's book, AI generated children's book. This is Bayer sponsoring fans hearts. Um, the point on aspirin for you is for, if you haven't heard this case, this is this year's case study for aspirin. The insight was that fans can double their heart attack risk while watching their sports team, their favorite team play. Right. And so we said, all right, we're going to reach them while their team is playing. And we're going to sponsor the one thing that's never sponsored in sports, which is the fans' hearts. Became because Bayer Aspen, you know, can help you sit, um, save you from a heart attack. So we said, we're the official sponsor of fans' hearts. 
And then there's a whole bunch of stuff coming out from that in terms of influencer posts, social campaigns. We're driving everybody to a website where they can check their, their risk factors. Um, several hundred thousand people took the risk factor, you know, test, et cetera. And then Allergan forces a beauty above brand. But the example here is we didn't just, you know, like tell a story about how the aesthetics industry needs to become more inclusive. There's two really important things we did here. The first is working with um, a couple of professional societies to update the actual, uh, create an atlas for showing um, dermatology, dermatological conditions on diverse skin. Because a lot of the things that uh, the textbooks that they use to train in medical school only show dermatological conditions on white skin. And so if you're a dermatologist, you've never even seen it on darker skin tones, it's harder to diagnose. So we actually developed an atlas that updated that so you could see those, uh, you know, see the conditions. And then secondarily, producing the, um, you know, the, the content uh, library, working with Shutterstock. And the idea here, the thing that makes this different, because a bunch of different categories have done this and said, well, we need to have better representation in, you know, the content in the advertising. And so we'll, we'll create, uh, you know, folders of content with Shutterstock or whoever. But the difference here is because in this category, the doctors typically do a lot of their own marketing. All right. So there's 6,000 doctor websites out there that are in their local market in, you know, Sheboygan or Boise or Des Moines. They're trying to get people to come in and, and get Botox injections and whatever. And on their website, every picture is a white person. And so we put together this content library and then went out to the doctors and said, you need to update your websites to be more representative of the patients that are considering this procedure. So elements of earned first marketing programs, consumer centricity was number one, shaping both expectations and experiences was number two, evolving from storytelling to story making was number three, working with creators as producers was number four, frictionless media planning means leading with earned, amplifying with paid, and then embracing new technologies quickly. Putting it all together, consumerization is happening to pharma and has happened to marketing rendering the typical playbook ineffective. The solutions and earned first marketing program that gets you Googled. Neither traditional ad agencies or traditional PR firms are built to do this. It requires a lot of courage from PR and comms leaders to push for the change their brands need. But with more than half of pharma brands missing their sales expectations, there's no time like the present. Thanks, guys. All right. Thanks, as always, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your friends and colleagues on LinkedIn? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at Lippy Taylor. That's L-I-P-P-E-T-A-Y-L-O-R. And to learn more about us and our agency, visit us at LippyTaylor.com. Thank you for listening to Frictionless Marketing. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to check out Paul's best-selling book, Friction Fatigue, What the Failure of Advertising Means for Future-Focused Brands. In Friction Fatigue, Paul explains to readers why advertising is broken and provides a frictionless marketing framework to help build your brand in an era where advertising is no longer the answer. You'll learn how to protect your business against competitors and lead the pack with fresh marketing strategies that will help you prepare for a future where the consumer rules. Friction Fatigue is now available on Amazon and as a book on tape on audible.com. Thanks again for listening.